this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. So the Zoom story. So I'm. This is. I got this from like a two paragraph thing that I read, but apparently Zoom was doing something that pissed Apple off. They were in order for the links. I, I think they said in order for the links to work, and I think they're referring to the links that start meetings, like the ones that I send you. Mm-hmm. That the Zoom app was installing a separate uh, internet s- secret internet browser on people's computers. Whoa. And that pissed Apple off because <laughs> they're not supposed to do that. Yeah. So Apple pushed out an update that made their shit not work. Basically. And so they had that's why there's an update to the Zoom app because they're like, oh crap, we got caught. I mean how did, <sighs> that's that's that almost makes me not want to use Zoom. Do you have any idea who the parent company for Zoom is? But I mean it's not any worse than Spotify and you still like using Spotify. Yeah, that's true. So, what was the question? Who's the parent company? Yeah, who's the parent company? I Wasn't think, a, isn't it Microsoft? No, I think they, they're independent. I think they're just Zoom. Hmm. I could be wrong, but... Let's oh, let, me, let me turn that off. Hold on. Bells and whistles. Bellsing. Yeah, new Mac. I haven't like shut off anything or changed anything yet, but it's the new MacBook with the USB-C only. So, I had to like wait and get an adapter. Um, oh, test you have the one I have, basically. Yeah, I mean, I love this thing. Don't get me wrong, but the lack of ports is really annoying. So Hopefully, yours is better than mine. Mine is not, nothing but a fucking headache. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obnoxious. I got a, a pretty cool adapter though that incorporates a bunch of stuff that I really like, and it matches the color of the MacBook. So I I, I feel like a spy. <laughs> uh, Zooms from San Jose. How about oh, that? Huh? No I way. Think I knew that. Somebody told me that. I can't remember who told me that. That's kind of cool. I think it might have been. Uh, Daniel Doyen from Readwise when I had him on the show. I think he might have told me that. Either that or... Yeah. Anyway. Dude, I, I so need a, a boom. This is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. You you didn't use the laugh that I used it. Now you understand. Yeah, I totally under, I totally get it now. Yeah, having hands-free recording is the best thing ever. Uh, now if I could just figure out how to like talk into the air. 
That'd be or, even better because I, I love when you marching. Have a boom, that's what it feels like, man. You just put, instead of, some people make the mistake to put the boom in front of them so they're looking at the boom. Mine's off to the side. Like, technically, my mic is pointed at the side of my mouth. Mm. So when I look forward, I don't see the microphone. Interesting. Here, I'll take a picture. Yeah, I'd like to see that set up. Uh, taking a, this is, the, I think, the second episode in a row where I took a picture in the middle of an episode. Yeah, last time was a dog. Let's see. Oh, that's, that's going to be difficult to see. You ever think you were born in the wrong era? Mm, yes, most days. Mm. I mean, granted, I like technology and all that, but oh, that is like the worst picture. <laughs> Let's get some light in here. Uh, all right. Maybe I was born in the right era. I just, I don't know. I, I get the sense that when people say stuff like that, like in my case, for example, I feel like I was, I, I was definitely born in the right era, but not for me. I was built in the right era for me to affect the world. <laughs> but not for my own pleasure. So, well, I would say that you were born in the right area, con- in era, considering you're an Asian American, because it would have sucked ass to be an Asian American at pretty much any other time in history. Yeah, that's true. It's a good point. Um, me, being a white straight male, pretty much most of history is open and free for me. Pretty good for you. Yeah, sure. Um, granted, it depends on the country, of course. Yeah, sure. But, uh, I don't. I, I think like. I feel like I was born just like maybe a decade or two late. Like, I feel like I should have been an adult in the 70s and 80s mm. instead of being born then and growing up then. So, so tell me why you think that. There was just enough technology to be interesting. It's kind of like I'm, I've been watching the, the newest season of Stranger Things, which mm-hmm. is I'm on the, I'm, tonight I watched the last, final episode. And I still haven't seen any of this season yet. It's fantastic. It's it's it's. I can't say it's been a long time since I watched the first one. I liked the second one, but this one's better than the second one. Yeah, a lot of people I know who watch who watch the show religiously have told me that like this has been the best season so far, and that's saying something. This one is definitely the most horror. Mm-hmm. It is definitely a horror show. But the thing, the why why I bring up that show though is the first season to now. If, if people have. I, probably haven't paid attention to this. I didn't pay attention to this because I was wrapped up in like the nostalgia of the show. But I believe it was the guys on Weird Studies that pointed this out. They did an episode, I think it was two episodes ago. I'll put it in the show notes. I think it was called The, uh, the Demogorgon. I think that's what they called the episode. And they, they discussed... One of the guys had written a paper about Stranger Things after season two. Mm-hmm. And what they talk about in that episode is technology. And how you you're watching the development of technology in that show. There's like in the first season, there's literally like no devices except for those little walkie talkies. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if you see a television in the first season. And then the second season, here's the arcade. And now in this one, it's the mall and you see microwaves and you see televisions. There's more and more technology emerging. And when I watch that, that's why I, I feel like I could have, I should have been born before because when I see those, the time in the first season with technology, but it's like this naive technology, like the transistor is still like the king and the microchip is just kind of like coming into its own. Mm-hmm. That's where I feel the most secure and safe. I, I, I'm more, most comfortable with that time period. I don't want to go back to before people 
took bat- bats on a regular basis or flossed their teeth. <laughs> you know, like I, I don't, I don't want to know what it's like to uh, have sex with somebody who hasn't bathed in two weeks. Oh, geez. Those are just not things that I, I don't want to go back that far back in history, which is not sure. that far back. Yeah, in that's reality. true. Yeah. You go back to I mean, the that's, 20s. That's, that's two or three generations back. Yeah. Yeah. You go back to the 20s, people were sharing bath water because they didn't have a lot of it, mm-hmm. um, which is disgusting to think about. But yeah. I, I, feel I wonder like if it's disgusting just because of perspective of that, though. Yeah. It absolutely is. It wasn't disgusting to them. Yeah, it was sure. clean, clean to yeah. them, right? They're like, I'm getting clean right now. Like, mm, I don't know about that. But I, I guess you know you compare that to people who use like antibacterial soap and all this shit. Like, mm, you think you're getting cleaner, but are you? No, you're not. That's an interesting discussion, though. Like, I think about the things that that define our age. You know what I mean? Even even other things like um, how different. You know, you said it at the top of the show, which is you know it's probably the best time in human history for me to be an Asian American. You know. Well, yeah, you definitely wouldn't want to be one more during World War Two. Yeah, just one, two to three generations ago, and it's a completely different story. And to clarify for people who don't know why I said that. Even though lamb is not Japanese, <laughs> the stupid people in America during World War II didn't know the difference between oh, Japanese yeah. and non-Japanese Asian Americans. Yeah, so, all Asians got in, interned. Doesn't yeah. even matter. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to send you this picture now so you can kind of see. It's hard because the microphone doesn't stand out very much in the background, but you'll get the gist of how I have this set up. And sometimes, like right now, I'm turned a little bit more towards the mic, but I don't have to. It picks up my voice either way. You know, uh, I'm multitasking right now, so this is terrible, terrible, terrible time to be recording me. Okay, sent back, back from multitasking. Weird, weird because, oh man, I totally. We we always forget in human history that we've been in that we've had internment camps in this country. Oh yeah, I I, I feel like um, shit, what was the name of the book? It's a pretty good picture of you, by the way. That's a pretty bald picture of me. <laughs> Um, I forget what the name of the book is. Oh, Farewell to Manzanar. Have you read that book? No, I I, I feel bad for not having read it though because I'm told that I should. It's about the internment camps. Um, I can't remember the girl's name who wrote it. I I think it was actually her and her husband. But it is about the internment camps. It's, It's a fictionalized account, but not really because I'm pretty sure that everybody in there has the name of her family. So maybe actually, maybe it's not a fictionalized account. I'm I'm pulling that out of my ass right now. But it's a book that I feel like every American should have to read in school. The reason that they don't have us read it in school because they don't want us to remember. I mean, we talk about how, how horrible it is that China, people in China are unaware of the fact that Tiananmen Square happened because it's mm-hmm. removed from the history books. Sure. We've done the same thing with, with internment camps during World War II. Um, Janine... Wakatsuki, Houston. Yeah, and James D. Houston. So it's it's her grandfather. Wait, no, her father, I believe. Anyways, read the book. <laughs> Everybody, even as adults, it's 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 an easy read. Everybody should read it. It came out in 1973. It's it's a fantastic book. Makes me think of one of the easiest and most horrifying reads um, that that probably most of us had at some point in our high school tenures, which is Night by Eli Wiesel. I didn't have to read that. I wish I had because we didn't read a lot of Holocaust stuff for some reason. I don't know why. I definitely did enough research on that on my own and uh, was experienced or 
was exposed to it during college, but in high school, we didn't really, not as much. I mean, we were, we got to really generalize everything, a little bit of everything. We didn't really focus on anything too much. Sure. Now that I look back at it, which is probably good, but yeah, I wish we had read Night because that's probably one of the best World War II novels. Oh my God. It's, it's brutal and amazing and ridiculously short and it's only like 110 pages or something like that but it's such a a poignant and brutal story if i remember correctly it's part of a trilogy yeah it is um i think it's uh, night morning and dawn that i don't remember right. it's, it's something like that yeah but yeah it was a brilliant piece of writing and it was at the time i mean i remember how i remember how brutal it was to because i'd never been exposed to holocaust literature prior to that you know of course after that you read the diary of man frank and a couple of other things that kind of shed more obvious light on it but it's really weird we didn't have to read that either isn't that weird that is weird and that, there's certain things where i hear everybody's like oh we all had to read this and i'm like i didn't have to read that and it wasn't does diary van frank never had to read that night we never had to read that there's one other one that everybody throws out and i'm like we didn't have to read that either you know we read everything else you know like romeo and juliet and uh king lear Obviously, a lot of Shakespeare, if I keep going. Uh, Lord of the Flies, Catcher in the Rye. You know, most of that stuff, To Kill a Mockingbird, of course. Sure. I think those three are like the three big ones. But there's one other, and I'm not going to remember it right now, but almost everybody talks about it. And I'm, even as an adult, I'm like, I still haven't read that. You know what? Actually, I take it back. I have read it now because I remember what it was. 1984. Huh. No way. I didn't read that until eight months, six months ago. That's really surprising. I'd seen the movie, but I'd never read the book. We read Animal Farm, though. See, I didn't read Animal Farm. I wonder if it's up to the teacher. It definitely is. There's there's certain things, you know, like the Odyssey, everybody has to read that. I think that's at least in California. I can't make a statement for every state educational system, but in California, you're required to read the Odyssey. And I think you're required to read one Shakespeare, mm-hmm. which almost always is Romeo and Juliet just because it's the easiest. Yeah, it is and it isn't though, because the themes are pretty complex in it. You know what I mean? Right. But from a school board standpoint, they're like, oh, it's about teenagers and these are teenagers. Therefore, it's easier than... It's way easier than King Lear. Oh, we'll true. put it that yeah, way. That's true. There's no way a teenager is going to get what's going on in King Lear. Um, there's always exceptions, of course. There's some fucking smart teenagers. I was not one of them. Or at the very least, we were smart in very different ways. I feel like I wasn't an idiot of a teenager. Like I understood most of what was going on. This part of the reason why I think Romeo and Juliet is is such a weird one because it's fairly brutal, more so than some of the other ones. Well, I guess Shakespeare just kind of in general is brutal, but um, especially tragedies. Really maudlin, mm-hmm. you know? like it's so exaggerated. Yeah, sure. Dramatic, you know, like it's it's such perfect for teenagers. We're like, oh, the world is so yeah, the, hard. The, the woe is me feeling. Yeah, sure. That's angst, right? Yeah, yeah. The world is against us. Whereas King Lear is just like, I'm getting old and this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Only one person really cares whether I live or die. Damn. Yeah, maybe we should have reading lists as adults, you know, things that we can relate to. It's funny that you say that because we have a reading list on the Random Badassery site now. Yeah, that's true. Recommends all the books that we keep bringing up over and over again. I w- I've forgot to mention that in this episode, so good thing you said that. I'll put a link to that. Everybody go check it out. 
Um, I have a couple recommendations real quick. These are not uh, media recommendations. These are kind of uh, health recommendations. Uh, one, they're really simple. They're short. If you're going to eat something with a lot of carbohydrates, like, for example, I just had pizza about 45 minutes ago. And if you're especially if you're somebody like me who is pre-diabetic, where your sugar levels will just shoot through the roof when you eat high-carb things, you can do two things to kind of uh, prepare yourself for that and to mitigate it. First of all, you can have a little bit of apple cider vinegar right before you start. Some For some people, that's enough. That's not enough for me to regulate the blood sugar. I'm not positive how that works, but it has something to do with regulating your blood sugar to keep it from spiking from the carbohydrates. But the other thing that I find is if I make a beverage of some sort, and I don't mean alcoholic beverage, just a normal beverage, and I put some fiber in it, you know, like Metamucil or Metafiber. Yeah. If you drink that at the time or after or before you've had the carbohydrate, it allows the sugars to hopefully bind with the fiber. Oh, interesting. Which is why you don't get spikes from a lot of fruit because it's bound with fiber. So that that's one recommendation. And then the second thing is I've been... I don't remember who told who told me about this. And God, I said that like I was there. What podcast I was listening to is probably what I should say. But they talked about heart rate variability. You know what heart rate variability is, Lim? I have no idea. So we talk about our heart rate, you know, like, oh, it's at 97. Anybody that has an Apple Watch that has sat and watched their heart rate on the Apple Watch for more than a minute notices that it moves around a lot. It's like 97, 98, 101. 96. It just keeps moving. That's heart rate variability because our heart rate is variable. It's not a constant. So it variates. When we talk about it in the terms of heart rate variability, um, it has a lot to do with our breathing. So the number one, the, the higher your heart rate variability is, means the stronger your heart is. The more variability that your heart can tolerate, the stronger your heart is. So like somebody who has like a 10 variability on heart rate is probably not doing too well healthy. They're probably not getting a lot of exercise. They're probably overweight. Whereas I just heard something with an athlete who had like 130. Oh, shit. That's really, really high. That's like an extreme, extreme athlete. (laughs) What we should all be aiming for is like, I think 40 or or above, of course. Anything above. Sweet Jesus. That's really high. 110? 130. 130. Wow. That's shocking. Yeah, it's insane. But that's like this is like an uh, he's a doctor and a and a endurance athlete. So mm-hmm. you know he's like the guy that's eating all the right food all the time, probably. But uh, back to why I'm bringing this up is where you'll notice the heart rate variability is when you're breathing. When you breathe in and when you breathe out, your heart rate is a different rate mm-hmm. because your breath and the oxygen you're taking in affects the heart rate. So one way that you can help to increase your heart rate variability is to breathe out for four or breathe in for four seconds. Make sure you breathe with your stomach and not your chest, and then breathe out for eight seconds. Mm. So you're doubling the length of the exhale from the inhale, and this increases your heart rate variability. But what also it does is it actually will release endorphins if you do it for more than a minute, and it is 
literally, I, I've you know, I've gone through anxiety and panic and all of that stuff in the past. Mm-hmm. And I've done all kinds of breathing exercises. This is the only one that I've noticed a physiological response from. Interesting. Like, because sometimes I'll I'll get up and uh, because of my anxiety path, sometimes when I get out walking and my heart rate starts to go up because I'm exercising, it's going up in a good way. My body gets a little nervous because it's used to heart rate going up being a scary thing. So mm-hmm. there's this conditioned response. And if I just go into that breathing for like a minute, the nervousness disappears. Oh, crazy. It's fantastic. It's such an easy trick. And what I've been, it's, so it, it will increase your heart rate variability over time as well, which I've seen. Mm-hmm. If you have the Apple Watch, you can go into the health, health app and look at heart rate variability. And I can see mine. It's been in, it's been going up. I'm still only at like 23 right now, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't because of the shoulder thing. I haven't been boxing. Once I go back to boxing, it's going to shoot up even more because I do interval training with the boxing. Sure, and that also increases heart rate variability. So those are my two recommendations: ways to do things better. Dun dun dun. Play the play the music from the Parquet commercial. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> Parquet. Yeah. Parquet. Parquet. <laughs> oh man, I was. I was no, nobody about, listening was probably alive when that happened. Well, I, I forget the, the. There's certain other things too, right? Like the the pearl cream. Remember that the pearl cream. Oh yeah. I mean, there's so many of those random. Like, where's the beef? Like, where oh, where where have all the jingles gone? Yeah, I know. Everything. You know what it is. Everything. I feel like commercials got shitty. Well, commercials got less memorable when they changed the rule where you could use recorded musicians music you know like bands like we have like polaroid had uh that cure song in it the stones being in a commercial led zeppelin being in a fucking cadillac commercial when they all had to come up with their own jingles and stuff it was so much more fun Mm. they were ridiculous just the most ridiculous you know there was the local ones that if anybody is listening that wasn't in san jose in the Bay Area, you probably won't know this one, but I'm the credit man. Remember that? I don't actually. You don't remember Paul? No. From the Diamond Center? Oh, yeah. Well, it, he would drive around in that Cadillac. He's, I'm the credit man. Da, 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 da. Oh, man. Yeah, I actually do remember. Yeah, that, that cheesy stash, kind of like yeah, Hopper that, that and Stranger Things. So, yeah, and he's he looked so dirty. <laughs> mm-hmm. The curly hair and like the members grave members only jacket. Mm-hmm. I would totally wear that jacket. I feel like he had a toothpick too. Likely the sunglasses. Was he in a convertible? Yeah, I think it was like a convertible Beamer. Mm. Or Mer- no, convertible Mercedes. That seems right. Yeah, like a silver Mercedes. There was a lot of those commercials though, so I might just be remembering one. Yeah, they might just be blending together in your head. Yeah, I feel like that would be if somebody made like a, somebody probably has a montage of all those type of things on YouTube, I would probably be the person who would sit there and watch it for like an hour. Like, oh yeah. Yeah, I'd watch it. This. Or like even, um, I remember, for some reason, I remember the, the, the like the, the Alaska Airlines commercials, dun, 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 and like they were really <laughs> very jingly. Um or what we would what would we think of as jingles? Um, yeah, there's a lot of brilliant stuff during that era. 
But that was also the era in which a guy like John Williams was crafting memorable and unique music that that defines... I mean, I love Hans Zimmer, don't get me wrong, and a lot of the modern composers are really cool. Um, but there's something about that era and John Williams and the epic music that came from that era that was really unique. I don't remember... I think I was watching the Superman Returns. Mm-hmm. The Oh, yeah. The hell directed that? Um, Brian uh, Singer. I, I actually really liked that one. Everybody hated it, and I actually really liked it. This was a while ago, but you know they bring in the John Williams theme in that movie, mm-hmm. and it was probably the first time as an adult I had heard like the full Superman theme, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking like, "Fuck, this is this is as good as the stuff he did for Star Wars. Mm-hmm. It is as good because it's so epic and so he just he, the guy knew how to use a fugal horn." That is the first time in my entire life I've heard that fucking sentence. Uh, it really brought the room together, that fugal horn. Oh, damn fugal horn. Who knew? Welcome to the show. Oh my goodness. We need like a we need like a gong or like a bell, like bing. You know, I there are certain there are certain musical scores that that I I in in modern time that are really amazing though that i've kind of not really been keeping track of but like i noticed them because they're so rare now you know mm. like if you watch any of the um the godzilla movies the new ones um the scores are amazing i mean regardless of how you might feel about the movies i think they're okay um but the scores are incredible and and you know, like Westworld, for example, and the, and sure, that's adapting a lot of like 90s and alternative classics and stuff like that and turning them into saloon hits. You know what I mean? Um, like, I, I think probably one of my favorite adaptations of a piece of music is the um, piano version of Heart Shaped Box that they made for the show. Mm-hmm. It's just unbelievable. It's really, really good. I've, I'm that painted black version or adaptation was excellent too. That was, yeah, amazing. absolutely. Yeah. And then they did the first thing I'd ever seen of that show was just a clip with that song. And I was they did um, Cash Rules Everything Around Me by the Wu Tang Clan in (laughs) feudal in feudal Japanese, and it was so good, incredible. Yeah, it's just I I love that kind of stuff. But I'm but I'm I'm a sucker for unique covers, though. That's kind of a thing. Yeah, me too. I hate when the cover is identical to the original. I'm like, why Mm -hmm. waste the time? Yeah, then just listen to the original. Mess with it. That's the point. Mm, You reminded me of something, and I forgot. Oh, well. Modern music... Well, there goes that. Oh, you know what? 12 Years a Slave. The score for 12 Years a Slave. Well, that's one of those ones that pay, most people probably didn't pay attention to. Sure. But there's a lot of interesting things going on in that movie. Like, for example, almost every time... Uh, you've seen that movie, right? Uh, yeah, but I don't remember it much. I feel, I feel... I kind of watched it in passing. So Benedict Cumberbatch plays a preacher named something Ford. And every time he is preaching, because he's he's like a, he's a racist piece of shit, right? Yep. Hides behind religion. But every time he's preaching, they play like a slave song, um, or what I assume is a slave song. And most of these songs have the N-word in them. And so it's like they're using that as a juxtaposition to show the hypocrisy of him. Because here he is preaching the Bible uh, and preaching equality. And then, you know, but he's a racist piece of shit. So they're playing these songs underneath it. But then there's there's a part where Solomon, the main character, is to be hung. 
and he's hanging. He just doesn't end up dying. And there is this sound in the soundtrack because it's 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 kind of like um like Sergio Leone's. I mean, not Sergio Leone. I mean, they are his movies, but Ennio Morricone. Enzio Marconi, who's my literally one of my favorites. Yep, carry on. Um, Ennio, though, no, no Z. Um, and his music comes from abstract art and abstract music, actually. Mm-hmm. That's why it, the pace of the songs change and why he works the whistle and the gun and all that. Well, the guy who did this was obviously influenced him because there's just so much dissonance in the 12 Years of Slave soundtrack. But the moment when Solomon's being hung, there is this metallic noise that is probably one of the most sinister things you would ever hear in any film. Mm. It's just, it just sounds like metal being dragged against metal. Ooh. It's and amplified. So oh, that, that's cool. That's one that I probably would go back and listen to outside of the movie. Yeah, 12 Years a Slave is a great example of a movie that you cannot watch on a small device. Mm-mm. Because I watched that on a plane and on one of those tiny little screens with crappy sound. And I imagine my experience was not even close to complete. I feel like the only movie you should be watching on a small device, which actually I I watch none. I've never seen a movie on a phone. But if you're going to do that, cartoons or comedies, Mm. like cheap throwaway comedies that you won't remember in a year. Because then the cinematography doesn't matter. None of that shit matters. And cartoons, who cares? Cartoons are fun. I would totally watch Scooby-Doo on my phone. I don't care. You know, I was not a huge fan of Scooby-Doo. I love Tom and Jerry, though. Scooby-Doo was the... It was it's a repeated formula over and over again, but somehow it was the best. I don't know why. Well, sometimes you just find the thing that makes sense to you, right? Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say about commercials, too. You know, like, the reason we remember this shit is just the way the weirdness of the brain. Mm-hmm. You know, you just happen to catch that little child brain at the right moment when it's, you know, because we're kids, our brains are all over the place. Yeah. The reason we remember things is it just happened to be the moment that we were paying attention. Sure. Like that. I remember I did this with somebody not too long ago, a couple of years ago. We were talking about a PBS show. And those PBS shows from when I was a kid, and yeah, you probably were born. You're only, what, two years younger than me? Yep. Um, these were very early on, so you might have still been maybe uh, not watching or remembering this stuff because you were a lot. Little, that two years is a big difference. At you know when I'm four, sure, 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 <laughs> in, in year two. But uh, there was this show, and I probably saw it when I was four or five, and I remember it, and I remember telling somebody about it, and then it might have been Eric Victorino, and their eyes growing as they realized they knew what I was talking about. Huh. And, it was, and it wasn't back in those days, those shows were not long run shows. Most of those shows got one season, maybe two. And there weren't a lot of reruns. So if you remember this stuff, it's, it's actually almost miraculous. And it was this show about a department store at night with a mouse that wore this like plaid beret, a mannequin that came to life, and this uh, puppet, this old old dude as a puppet who had a bushy mustache. That's all I knew. And in like 10 minutes, I was able to find it on the internet and watch an episode of it and remember the theme song. What the hell show is that? It's called Today's Special, I think. Or was called. I shouldn't say it's not current. 
Today's special, I think. Yep. I, I have no idea what that is. Yeah, that, that's why I'm saying that two-year age difference might make a huge difference. Because we are talking, let's just say, oh, shit. Six years that was on. Okay. 81 to 87. Hmm. And it was Canadian, but we got it here on our PBS. But I, I watched it and I could remember it to the point where I was watching something I hadn't seen in 30 plus years mm-hmm. for, and listening to it and singing the words. How's that? That's so random. That's so weird, right? That's the, that's the magic of the human brain. Well, I feel like there are certain things like that too. Like I, I have a weirdly good memory for specific things that triggered certain aspects of my childhood. Like there's, um, do you remember Danger Mouse? Of course. Maybe yeah, I, I was obsessed with that show. Um, and there's a big part of me that, that I don't know, is weirdly connected to it. Um, and that was, and was on like the shittier public access channels. That was mm-hmm. on like uh, 48 or something like that. Yeah, 36 actually, I think. No, 36 wasn't public access. Okay. Yeah, it was on some kind because it was an um, English show. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I was obsessed with Danger Mouse. I think a lot of my, my current aesthetic and, and like a lot of my sensibilities from that era comes from that specific show. That was a big show for me. And they also played a show on that same channel called Zoobly Zoo, mm-hmm. which was adults dressed as animals and Ben Vereen. Remember Ben Vereen? Oh, yeah. Holy crap. That, that was him. Um, but yeah, the, that show I, in this house where I am, I remember watching that show 30 feet away from where I am right now on one of those big TVs that would look like, you know, when the TVs were inside of wood, mm-hmm. you know, when the TV was like a piece of furniture. Yeah. I remember watching it on that and then adjusting the antenna, adjusting the antenna so that I could watch Danger Mouse. Um, here, let's see if you can, if you can hear this. This is the song. See if it rings any bells for you. Oh, totally. Dude, that is so random. How weird is that? I swear I haven't thought of that in like 35 years. It's crazy. And that's, that's not so even crazy. that's not even the hook song. Mm-hmm. That's just like the intro. Yeah, what's funny is I remember the theme song, but I don't remember anything else. I'm going to send you the link and you can watch the thing. Obviously not right this second, but... Um, have we, have we, has this show turned into a, we're just going to, you know, share shit from our childhoods? At least in the beginning. I want to get this main hook. Here it is. Oh my God. Uh, okay. Uh, no, just for the beginning, I, th- I feel like... I feel like the the warm up section of the podcast is kind of a chat. I was actually you bring me into something. I was talking about this with Tom on Monday. I had this idea where I was thinking about like all these I'm sorry if I, this is going to be weird getting this out because I've already at least as far as the audience knows, I've already talked about this. So I'm going to try to find a way to talk about this in a way that's not completely repetitive for them. I have this idea of all these notes that I take, right? Well, if they're facts and interesting facts, you know, like uh, trivia type stuff, mm-hmm. that's what goes in the news in my newsletter. That's what I put out in the newsletter. But then I have all the other ones that are like concepts. 
and stuff that we talk about, even the stuff that we've talked about in the show, like the last episode you and I did about intent and the importance of intent. Well, that's, mm-hmm. an, that's a concept. That's an idea, right? Uh, the, the defining line of what intent, the difference between intent and, uh, you know, like uh, saying a word purposefully and not saying a word purposefully. And so taking those ideas and, and finding a way that, because, you know, like I think like this, I'm always like, I have a researcher brain and I'm always looking things up, taking those things and trying to find something to do with that part of my brain. And finding, with all of those ideas collected, finding a through line, which I, I found a through line to do something that connects everything for me, but makes everything, um, gives everything new life, we'll say. So I've got these things on index cards, these ideas. And okay, what am I going to do with them? They're just sitting on index cards. Not all of them are index cards. Take those ideas, concepts, and bring him into the bring him into an episode with Tom, and talk about it with Tom, and see what Tom thinks about that idea. What does yeah. Tom think about it? Because I'm thinking I've already thought about it for myself. Probably, it's going to force me to articulate it because I'm saying it. You know, like I haven't said it out loud yet, so I'm going to stumble my way into some things. Like we talked about last time, also that conversation is a journey. I'm going to find things about what I think by talking to Tom about it, and I'm going to learn stuff from Tom and get a different perspective. And then take that same concept and bring it into the episode with you and find out what you think about it. Huh. And what I bring in will be different with you than what I brought in with Tom because now my, my perceptions will be changed by what I discovered and by what he shared with me and what, what his ideas were. And then take basically take that idea and imagine it as an index card. Now, you put it into a document. And that's at the top. And underneath it is everything that comes out of both of those episodes. Now you're starting to flesh something out. Now you take that... I shouldn't say you. Now I take that and I, I let it sit for a while. And I you know, move on to the next one. Every, every, every week is a different idea, right? Sure. Then after I've stewed on it and I feel like I want to dig in, I dig in, I find one. And I do a solo episode on my Patreon to try to flesh out over time what I've learned about this concept and what I think about this concept. Then I let that stew for a while. And then at some point I take that episode and try to flesh that into an article and I publish that on the medium. So in the process of putting out the episode on Patreon, I would assume that I'm probably going to get some input from my patrons, which could change and alter the idea. And then when I put it on medium, I'm going to get people's opinions and change and alter. But every time that I have to move it to a new form, I'm forcing myself to understand it more and more and to articulate it in different ways. First, I'm articulating it just as an idea on a piece of paper. Then I'm articulating it as part of a conversation with one person. Then articulating it as a conversation with another person. Then having to articulate it myself in words, spoken words. Then having to articulate it into writing. And then after I've done all of that, and I've done all of that with many, many, many concepts over many, many episodes of this show. I might start seeing some kind of theme for certain mm-hmm. ones. Interesting. And if they group into certain themes, then I can take that and make it into a book. Like A Field Guide to Getting Lost by Rebecca Solnit. Sure. Which is around the theme of getting lost. So what I want to do is 
we have the rough edges of the episodes, which is the random parts, you know, where we talk about the weird shit that we just talked about. And then at the end, we have our, for you and I, we have our challenges and we talk about that and our uh, Patreon and all of that stuff. And then for Tom, we have the questions that him and I do. But the tent pole, the thing that, the, the thing that we can wander off into tangents about, but still have something to return to is that idea or whatever concept that I bring into the episode. So like, for example, when Tom and I talked about what I'm going to talk to you about today, we went into like five or six different directions, but we kept going back to the main idea. And I was, one of the things I told him about that, that I, I really enjoyed about that, it was, it reminded me of when you and I were doing the paranormal stuff mm-hmm. more often that we would go with those for as long in them as as long as we could until like we ran out of steam on it, and then having another idea was always really nice because we'd hit that like lull mm-hmm. where we'd finished and be like, okay, so the next thing there's always that thing to sweep it up, but instead of having many 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 things, we go off on tangents and then we hit that dead spot. We can always go back to the tent pole idea. Okay, so back to intent, which we didn't know it, but that's. Exactly what we did in our last episode. Huh. We we wandered off into one area and then we go back to intent. And we so wander we, back to So we naturally are, are evolving into that format anyway, whether we like it or not. That's honestly that's where the idea came from. It was an idea of wanting to change the show because I don't want to change the show. Sure. It was a matter of looking at the way that the show functioned and going, Oh, I can utilize this to do something bigger. Mm. And I thought that that would be a lot of fun to be able to actually watch people be able to be able to watch an idea grow. You know, because also like I've been reading Ray Dalio's book, Principles. And one of the things that he talks about in there is the idea of triangulation. There's Without having to go into his full story, he was diagnosed with some, uh, I think it was a blood disorder or something like that, that was going to kill him in like six months or something like that. So this, this doctor... One doctor recommended one thing. I can't remember what the first doctor recommended. So he went and got a second opinion. And that doctor said, well, oh, the first doctor said he was going to die. That's what it was. You're going to die. The second doctor said, no, you're not going to die, but we're going to have to take your intestines and connect it to your esophagus. Jesus. Yeah. Um, Then he went to a third doctor and he went to the third doctor and they did tests and found out they they did a biopsy and they found out that he didn't even have the thing that they, they thought he had. Oh my God. So he said, and it's not because any of those doctors were bad. It's just because that's the way it looked to them. So he, his principle is to always triangulate, try to get three, three opinions on everything. Mm. Three trusted and valued opinions, not random opinions. So I was thinking, I'm like, one is you, two is Tom. And then even, I can even bring it up if I have a guest. You know, if it fits the guest, I could get a triangulation on ideas. Kind of, kind of crazy idea, isn't it? Well, plus I like the idea of you then putting it all together in the end. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I, I like the idea of, of looping them all back and creating um, some kind of through line that makes sense through the the conception of the idea all the way through to the very very end, which is the conclusions. Yeah, it'd be very interesting to see how it develops. You know, obviously it's an idea. Who knows? Maybe the only way it's ever going to work is just in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Maybe the writing it an article thing never ends up working. I don't know. I haven't tried it yet. Sure, but I, I like the, I, I like the I like the idea of the idea. The you know idea I mean? of the idea. 
like the idea of, of solidifying the ideas that way. Yeah. I like, I like, it's like, uh, taking things on a test run, mm-hmm. you, you don't, or rough drafts, right? You don't just do one draft. Yeah. You do many, many drafts. And that's one of the things I mentioned in the episode with Tom is I feel like there's a lot of writing out there that people go through the rough draft and then they publish. Mm-hmm. And then when they publish and it's exposed to the public, they take offense to the comments that they get because what they assume they've published is a final version. But it's only another step. Sure. And I, it's kind of like what Amanda Palmer does on her Patreon. Well, she'll put up like, uh, rough, not rough drafts, but you know, like uh, demos of songs or, and expose the audience to those. But that's not done because then she's going to take what she learns from that and build the song up more and build Mm -hmm. a song up more. And then she's going to produce it and put it on an album that she puts for sale. So it's a way to strengthen something, but it's also a way to, instead of that final product being the only important step, it's a way to make every step along the process important because the podcast becomes more interesting because even though there's all these other random things, there's people will know at least that, oh, this is the one that's about that one topic. Sure even though it's about all those other things too, you know, today's special, this episode, it's, it's somebody's going to remember today's special from it. But the main thing that they'll probably remember is the main topic that we're going to talk about. It's funny. I, I hear the wraparound voice from uh, last week. This week on Random Madassery. <laughs> um, we you know, discussed Chad's toenails. I don't know why that just popped into my head as we were talking about this because it feels like it feels like it can become episodic, but the weird part about it is it's episodic in different places. So there's now a succession of episodes that don't live in the same medium that are telling the story. That's right. Fascinating. Well, what's also really cool about it too is if you if you think about it in the sense of uh, we'll, we'll use the example of that intent idea again. Just because you and I talked about that for an hour, and we'll say I also talked about it or. Uh, for Tom for an hour. Then we'll assume the other hour of the show is random stuff. Just because we talked about that for an hour with both all three of us doesn't mean we've mined that idea fully. So some of those ideas might need to sit and they might come back again. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because something might happen that we change our perspective. You know, like, um, who knows? If, if it's something about... Uh, intent and something happens in the news that I go, whoa that's a different way that I can see intent that I didn't see before. And it might come back in again. So we might be able to get to dig into it again and again. It's really fascinating to take ideas and use them as play structures instead of as, um, well, as weapons, which I think they get used as a lot. Things to wield against others. Where's that from? Words as, words as weapons is, is from somewhere. It's probably been used many, many times. Yeah, but there's a, like a specific album or something like that that I'm thinking of that I really liked, actually. Mm, uh, I don't know. I'll find it somewhere. I'll find it and post it somewhere. Oh, first action item. First action item. Good. We, we're, starting to, we're starting to recognize them in the episode. Yep. Dun, dun, dun. Words as weapons. Okay. Um, so, along those lines, the topic that I talked to Tom about on Monday... You see, this is perfect because I know that with your busy time, you don't get the time to hear Tom's episodes before you come in. Mm-hmm. And he definitely doesn't get to hear yours because I record with him like 
less than 12 hours after your episode comes out. <laughs> so what this is going to be really interesting for you and I, because this is something we used to talk about all the time. We go back to the old days. When we, were, <laughs> when we were using fucking earbuds to record Back when we were stuff. using bullshit and plugging shit into our phones. You know, you're starting to sound like Terrence and Philip. I, a little bit, yeah. I'm starting to feel that. I'm, it, like it's creeping. It's you're such an asshole. Creepy. You're such an asshole. Uh, inf- personal information management or personal knowledge management. That's. Do you remember that? No. So we might not have used the term back then, but it's back when we used to talk about OneNote, Apple Notes, Evernote. Oh, yeah, there. yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, we didn't use, at least that's not the term of it that I recognize, but I, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, so taking... The reason I brought it up is because um, I was going through this process of having these ideas. that, Like I said, a lot of them are actually on index cards. But I needed to be able to put them in a place where I could search them. And the reason search is super important in this context is I don't have the time to continually read every index card that I have to find everything that fits on one topic. Mm. You know, for example, I think I used Alien as an example with Tom. I'll use it with you. If I want to find all... I want to have this idea about aliens or something. Maybe it's about how ancient aliens definitely used ramps to build, you know... Uh, I'm sorry, not the ancient aliens, but the the ancient Egyptians used ramps to build the pyramids. So that's a big fuck you to the ancient aliens theory. Mm-hmm. So I want to find all of the notes that have to do with aliens or Egypt. I don't have time to read all the index cards. Just <laughs> I just don't, right? Sure. Not, I can do it once, but not every single time I have an idea. So I need to be able to go into something and type in alien and see everything that comes up and go, that's what I want to read. That's, that one helps. That one helps. That one helps. Mm-hmm. Type in Egypt. That one helps. That one helps. And collect all of that so that I could bring that into the episode as things to bring up to spur the conversation and, to, um, and anything that doesn't make it into the conversations can still be used in the other versions of the draft going forward. You know, So I was playing with our two old um, frenemies, Evernote and Divinthink. Mm. And just getting so frustrated because I couldn't find something that did very simple things that I needed to do. And so Tom and I talked about a lot of stuff. And one of the things that he brought up was something that you and I have definitely talked about before, desirable difficulty. Mm-hmm. That making it too easy and trying to find the thing that does all of the things that I thought I needed to do might actually be detrimental to that process. Sure. So um, I'm going to throw in a third app in there. I've been I have I've been playing around, and I've come up with some feelings <laughs> using these apps. The third app I'm going to throw in there is a possibility of Scrivener. So, um, do you have any thoughts or feelings about those three programs for anything that I've said so far? Huh, trying to loop that all together. I can give you something more tangible if you need. Yeah, give me a little more tangibility than that. Like telling me or asking me what I think about all these things is, I mean, that's that's an entire episode. Okay, maybe let me frame the question like this. If you were trying to do what I'm doing, the way that I've just described it, if you were going to take small snippets of thought, concepts, we'll call them, 
and put them somewhere that you wanted to be able to search them, but in a way that you could also group them or pull them together to, you know, to use in the way that I'm talking about. And then you might want to add notes to that. You know, so if, if th- this idea you have, well, after you talk about it with, well, after I talk about it with, with you, I'm going to have ideas that I didn't have before. I need to add that to the note. Um, so what would you, if you were just, if that's all you knew and you were just going to go into it, how would you approach that? If it were me, because my brain thinks in narratives, I would begin to construct a narrative. Um, so I would write it my brain thinks best in script form. So I would probably use Scrivener. So when you say a narrative, what, so there's how a do you story, build a narrative so around a concept? So there's a story here, right? Like there's with every concept, especially with what we're talking about, there's a goal to be desired. Um, there's something that you're trying to achieve. Um, like in this particular case, for example, the end result is an article that summarizes the core of the ideas, the journey that the the idea itself has taken through the various filters that it's gone through, whether it's people or whether it's conversation um, or, or in the episodes themselves or things that you read. Um, there's an end, there's an end result here. And sometimes telling the story along the way helps you to understand what the narrative is supposed to be. Like I, it, it would always, in my brain, it would always live as a, this is the starting point or this is the challenge. This is the introduction into the story. And then there's, at some point, there's a point of no return. So I would go full Joseph Campbell on it. Um, you know, there's a point of no return, like an untr- introduction of the hero, point of no return. And at one point or another, you reach a point in the concept or the idea where the conclusion of that concept or idea leads to an epiphany that changes a course of action that adds either a tool or a methodology into what you do on a daily basis that fundamentally changes who you are and how you do things. So I would start with the concept, like the core idea of the concept, and then I would end with the conclusion of why that concept has evolved into what it is and how it serves in your life or whether it does or it doesn't. Like there are times where, you know, the, 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 the hero fails, you know, like the, the, the idea itself fails and that then becomes um, a conclusion in end of itself. Hmm. I definitely, that's, that's really interesting. I have to think about that. Because I, I like to think of things in terms of narratives. I mean, that's how my entire day is to be honest with you with almost everything that I do. I always think of everything in terms of a story. Yeah, see, that's it's definitely something I have to think about in the sense that that's not what I was thinking about at all. These are what I'm imagining these to become are non-narrative essays. So an essay extrapolating... <laughs> and, the way, and the way I picture them is fully narrative essays. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's, I'm imagining this as an extrapolation upon an idea. So like uh, things expanding out from an idea. The mm. intent, what is intent? And then, so uh, think of them more as philosophical traditional lives or in the creative lives or in the work lives, um, tell you that, that something can't be done. Um, and then go out and prove them wrong. Prove yourself wrong. Prove everybody wrong. You know, but, you know, I, I, examples of that in my own life, you know, with, with golf, for example, I, I was told that there was no way I could get to a single digit handicap in five years. So I said, really? Watch me. You know, um, as a writer, it was the same thing in my early age. I was, Born in the east side of San Jose, well, not born in the east side, but I was raised in the east side of San Jose where, you know, there were gangs and underprivileged um, neighborhoods and, and not the best of schools. And p- 
people were telling me that there was there was a ceiling um, as to how far I could go or what I could learn or what I was expected to be. And one of the things I learned very early on was that I hated that notion. Um, I hated that notion that I was built into a little box before I even had a chance to try. And I think that one of the lessons, though, that we're very clear about in almost every episode and with every artist feature and with every inspiration episode we do is that those, all of those things, you know, all of those, those limits that are imposed by society or by your family or by yourself are things that, that are so irrelevant to how, how expansive your life can be if you're open-minded enough and more importantly, open-hearted enough to be able to, to, to risk beyond what you think. And, and to be honest with you too, after, after you do it for long enough, it's not even risk anymore. It's just what you do. It's just who you are. You see, you see a challenge in front of you, and and whether or not you can even do it doesn't even enter the equation. It, it's it's not about whether you can pull it off or not. It's about just doing it, and and I think that that's one of the things that that we we very much talk about on this quote all the time with all of the the the, the twists and angles and formats that we go, which is bravery is bravery is is life. Bravery is creativity. Bravery is progress, and safety is the opposite. The biggest myth that we sell ourselves is that failure matters because we we think, of course, it matters. It goes back to that ego driven thing where it's I tried this and I failed. Now we have to make a big deal out of that failure. But in reality, what it takes is that humility and that that groundedness to go. Oop, that didn't work. Let me try this. Oop, that didn't work. Let me try this. Oop, that didn't work. That Let me try this. And that's the real, that's the creative mind, because the creative mind is not concerned with the consequences of what it's doing. It's concerned with what it's doing. And when we get over, uh, over obsessed with failure, what we're doing is we're, we're swimming ourselves into this, this pool of ego. And we don't realize it because we think, of course, it's about the circumstances, but it really is. We're just spinning facts off into fictions. And uh, that's a great skill to have if you're a writer, but not in that way. And so it's important when you're when you're considering this risk and this bravery and this creativity, it's important to see all of the facets and all of the manifestations of your ego. And uh, trust me, that's a lifetime goal of deconstructing <laughs> your ego uh, continually. Even in these conversations, I love these conversations with Lamb. And at the same time, it's 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 very easy to get caught up in what I think and what I feel, and and to sometimes uh, be spinning a thought off in my head while Lamb's talking and miss what Lamb is saying. And uh, if if I do that, then this this gets worse. You guys can feel that. You know, if I were to come back and not have a response to something he said, then it's obvious I was not listening to him, and that would make it worse. And that's a, a very basic example of how ego destroys creation. It makes something worse. It cripples it. It, it shackles it. So don't shackle yourselves. Break the chains. That's what I'm going to name this episode. Huh. And it's it's it, it goes back to my my Meryl Streep quote as as well as something that we've talked about um, in person, um, which is most human interaction is just about people waiting for their turn to talk. 
and and that is that is just i don't know it's it's just it's just a a tough way to live at some point in your life you realize that you don't really know anybody that you think you know and no one really knows you because all you've been doing your entire life is talking at each other yeah i think i've said it on here before this idea of start to live life as if it's it's something you get to do as opposed to something that's happening to you and what i mean by that is we we tend to think of life as a um a series of of obstacles that are being hurled at us that we must overcome and then we we find pride in ourselves because we're able to overcome that but uh, no that's the wrong narrative because that's about you um, sure Life, life is about things that you have the privilege to be able to do. And when you start, it goes back to our continual theme of gratitude. When you start to see those things, it makes you a more creative person because you're living in that, that same place. It's, they, they seem like different places, but they're the same place. Uh, that gratitude and generosity and, and creativity, they're all the same place. And that humility. They all live in that same place. So you have to learn to put yourself into that place. And that takes training. And I think that's why, you know, people um, like me practice things like meditation and so forth. You're training yourself to be where you want to be as opposed to, you know, like people get, they run away with their emotions. Imagine if you had the choice to, and you do, by the way. The choice to feel or not feel something. And I don't mean in a robot way, but, you know, if you're angry, to be able to stop yourself and say, I don't want to be angry right now. What I want to be is grateful. And to be able to turn that and, and have it be something true and pure. And that's really, it, it's a matter of just the reason you can flip that switch is because it's just a switch of perspective from yourself to everything else, to others, to outside of yourself, to from block, which block, by the way, creative block, that's a story. It's what you're telling about yourself. You've created a narrative about yourself to excuse certain things or to give yourself uh, the ability to not do something. you got to step outside of those things. You're crippling yourself. Yeah, yeah. Everybody has reasons. But uh, uh, this is something great. I, I went to a uh, I won't go into a lot of details, but I went to a seminar for something that uh, my sister is um, involved in, uh, which makes it sound really complex, but it's like a self-help type thing. And she's really important to her, so she wanted me to go and experience it. So I went just to check it out, and I got to spend the weekend with my sister, which was fantastic. And one of the things that they brought up at this thing that I really appreciated was the use of the word but. When we talk about, I want to do this, I want to write a book, but I don't have time. That but is your problem. It's, it's not that you don't have time. You not having time is not your problem. It's the but. Uh, now, take that sentence and replace it with the word and. Mm -hmm. I, I want to write a novel, and I don't have time. It changes the context of everything because now... The not having time it becomes something that you can work with, whereas the but I mean all the but does is achieve to uh, is seek to cancel out the first part of the sentence entirely. I want to write a novel, but you don't really need the second half of the sentence because that but means I'm not going to write the novel. 
Sure. So, stop staring at your butt, people. Uh, I hate big butts, and I cannot lie. <laughs> That's terrible. It That's is terrible. terrible, but we're tired. I, I, yeah, and we're tired, so we're gonna push on. See, the 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 one thing I I've heard the same thing, um, and it's the 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 and should be followed by a so, you know what I mean? Yes. Um, I forget what book it's actually in a book somewhere, um, and I don't remember what book it was. I feel like I read it recently too, um, but it's instead of a but, put an and, and at the end of the and the this the section with the and, put a so. And and that that creates a moment of action instead of a reason for inaction. And I think that that's that's. I mean, don't and don't get me wrong. Like I still struggle with this too. Um, you know, I have a full time job and a commute, so there's a lot of butts in there. There's just butts everywhere. Um, and and the toughest thing as 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 you know, a human being is to be able to 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 take a step back and to step outside of even even in misery there are comfort zones. You know, even even in misery there's predictability. And that predictability is sometimes more comforting than the possibilities that can come from unpredictability, from uncertainty. So, you know, there are plenty of relationships and plenty of people in careers that they don't like and and people who who suffer through certain things because they're comfortable in that misery. And I think that until you you have the guts to take a step outside of that, and I'm saying I'm I'm basically trying to convince myself of that right now. Um, until you have the guts to take a hard step outside of that, you're always going to be living in that misery. And to quote my favorite uh, Kurt Cobain line of all time, "I miss the comfort in being sad." Wow, you know, I know that this is supposed to be a quote episode, but this one is very quote heavy. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Inspiration episode, more like quote episode, guys. Yeah, bro. Gross. <laughs> All right. We're we're losing our minds here. <laughs> and we're doing it for you. Well, yeah. let's move into the second half of the show. And um Lamb, why don't you tell us about something that uh some sort of thing that you've been digesting that's been inspiring you? Holy crap, Song Exploder, by far. I mean, I I've been so many people have told me about it. You told me about it. Um you know, we've even talked about it on the podcast. You know, Eric was talking about it last night uh, when I was hanging out with him. He was just, you know, I, I asked him at the Randy podcast um, he was listening to. And even before I could finish the sentence, he immediately said Song Exploder. And let me tell you, I mean, if you're a lover of music or if you're a lover of creativity in general and you really want to get a, a sense of, of um, what it takes to write some of the songs that, that you've come to know and love and to to really understand what what the artists the artists really felt going into them i mean the song explorer is incredible in that it's it's it doesn't particularly stick to a certain genre or a type of artist or anything like that like they do um artists that are very obscure um at least obscure to me um i've discovered a few artists through there um but they also do um very big artists um that have nothing to do with each other for example um there's Bjork, then Metallica, then Alt-J, and everything in between. So, by far the most creatively inspiring thing I've seen in a long time. And to hear it from their own voices and to hear um, them candidly speak about some of the most 
memorable songs they've ever written is pretty telling. I mean, there are some things, for example, where you would have an expectation that, that a certain line was really serious and they meant it that way, but it was, you know, someone getting drunk and writing it on a napkin. And then the other side of that is you take a song that isn't very serious um, to you as a listener, and then you realize that it's them writing about something very serious in order to make light of it. So, I mean, there's, it's, it's magical. It's, it's, it has taken and i have a lot of great podcasts that i listen to but it has taken the mantle as the best podcast in my collection of podcasts yeah there's for those who haven't um listened to it first of all these song exploder episodes are very short they're like 15 minutes long um at longest and essentially what it is is uh i can't remember uh the guy's name is it hurricash oh, yeah. is it hurricash herway um, let me let me find it. Let me find it while you're talking. Okay, he he takes the artist. Sometimes it's it's a single artist. Sometimes it is a band, like a full band. Um, sometimes it's just one member of a band. But they take a song and it, it's it's essentially a quick boil down of what uh, VH1 used to do with classic albums, and it takes this person and they talk about the song, but they talk about the song in a deconstructive way. So they'll say something about the guitar. Um, you know, this is this is what the I was doing with the guitar here, and this is why I was doing it. And then they'll just play that. So they have the original tapes of the of the the masters of these recordings of these songs. So they can turn off the rest of the song and just play the one part that they're talking about. I I came to this realization because Eric was um telling Ryan to check out the podcast that podcast. And uh while they were talking about it and I kind of um, jumped in on their conversation it hit me that without realizing it that podcast is the exact blueprint that i stole when i when i suggested us moving towards creativity the idea uh. because that podcast what's it do it takes that the creativity of writing that song and deconstructs it and what do I say on this show all the time, every time? There's a podcast dedicated to creativity, to deconstructing creativity, to breaking it down. It all comes from there in in some small way. So do yourself a favor and go listen to that. Uh, it's fantastic. It's uh, Rishikesh Herway. There we go. Oh, and you know what? Also, that reminds me of something that I, I actually forgot to put on my list to mention. I told you about it. Um, there's a documentary on... Uh, HBO called Everything is Copy about the writer director Nora Ephron uh, I didn't really know a lot about Nora Ephron um, I just kind of put it on coincidentally Meryl Streep has to ha happens to have a fairly uh, big part of the documentary because she was in a lot of Nora Ephron films so that was a good lead into studying Meryl Streep but uh, it's, it's just a great biography of an artist uh, in general but the one part that I wanted to bring up right here is there's there's a a section where they're talking about when Harry met Sally, and the in the film when Harry met Sally, the most famous scene is Meg Ryan's character explaining to Billy Crystal's character that sometimes women fake orgasms, and then she proves it by faking an orgasm in the middle of this diner full of people, and at the end of the scene, this old woman who's staring over the waitress comes up to her. She says, I'll have what she's having. And it's, it's like the most famous scene in this movie. And in everything is copy the documentary. They, they show a clip of Charlie Rose asking 
Nora Ephron about that scene. And uh, she basically says that it, it was it wasn't something that she came up with. Um, she had been going through the process. So when Harry met Sally is essentially about relations between men and when, women. And is it possible for men and women to actually be friends without sex coming into it? And so in order to accomplish the script, uh, she went around and she started interviewing uh, men uh, about, you know, like little, secret little men things. What do men talk about? You know, the stuff that women already know about women. She wanted to know what men know about men. And uh, so she talked to Rob Reiner, who's the, the director of When Harry Met Sally, and a few other people. And in the process of talking to Rob Reiner and somebody else about this, the the fact that women fake orgasms sometimes came up. And apparently they didn't know this. Maybe the only reason most of us know this is because of When Harry Met Sally. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, because of that, she you know this conversation, she, oh, well, maybe we should put that into the script. So, you know, there's like a joint effort here and already because now she's having this conversation with Rob Reiner that creates a scene. So they put the scene in and they're doing the scene. And during the scene, it was just the conversation. The the, the actually faking um, the orgasm wasn't part of the scene yet. Um, so when they're running through the scene, Meg Ryan goes, what, why don't I just do that? Why don't I just make that? And they're like, would you do that? And she's like, yeah. So Meg Ryan throws her part in. And then they get to the end of the scene, and then Billy Crystal throws in the part about the woman saying, I'll have what she is having. So this this the most famous scene in this movie is just a complete joint effort. And uh, I, that totally fits everything we've said earlier about letting go of ego. You know, mm-hmm. just getting that collaborative spirit. Go check out that documentary. Lamb, what, what else you got for us? Uh, what what do you have for us? Was that your thing, the, the, the documentary? No, that was just a comment, but I don't want to go off on a tangent on my own for too long. <laughs> um, Song Exploder, um, I have been diving strangely back into um, so, two, two such weirdly opposite things. Um, the Fallen, which is a, a show on or a Netflix show that I guess originated. I, I don't know where it originated. I didn't really look at the origins of it, but um, I still think it to be Gillian Anderson's best work or the, the fall. I'm the sorry, fall, not the yeah. fall. Yeah. The fall um, Gillian Anderson's best work. Um, and I really, really liked her in Hannibal. So that's, that's saying something. Um, I also loved her on X-Files. So that's really um, telling in many ways. Um, the fall is fantastic. Um, and, and something a little different for me, which is, um, um, the new Star Trek series that's coming out on CBS. Um, I've been kind of monitoring that one pretty closely because I'm a huge Trek nerd. Um, Trekkie for, for those, I, I, I hate calling myself that, but I guess that's the most apt. Um, and really, really hoping that they get it right. <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong, like, I, you know, we've talked in the past about remaining true to source material and how little I care about that. But what I do care about is the essence or the soul of a series being lost because of, because of an executive's need for marketing. So I'm very, very worried about that series considering how many twists and turns it's taken, um, including yeah, speaking of Hannibal, the the original showrunner uh, Brian Fuller, who is one of my favorite showrunners in all of the 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 cinematic world, um, was originally slated to to helm that show. Um, that pun is entirely intended, um, <laughs> and he pulled out 
you know, because of creative differences and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the, the, the reasons are not really spectacularly clear as to why he pulled out, but he was a huge Trek nerd. Um, and he, he was, I, I at least thought that he was going to do the series justice. Um, the trailer was, for it was released and I was pretty excited by how the trailer looked, even though a lot of people ripped on it for not looking like the, the classic series. Um, I, 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 by the way, I still hate that. Um, of course, it's not going to look like the classic series. The classic series was made 50 years ago. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's going to look updated, guys. And yeah, the, we understand space flight and, 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 and the perils of space much more clearly now than we did uh, 50 years ago because we've been there. So uh, everyone just let go of that, um, please. Um, but yeah, I hope they maintain the, the essence of the, the, the series and the show and the spirit of Star Trek and they do it right. Well, for the record... When the next generation came out, they complained that it didn't look like the original series too. Ah, so lame! And it ended up being, at least in my opinion, it's by far the best series um, of any of the, the the Star Trek series that have been out. Absolutely. And when Deep Space Nine came out, they complained that it wasn't on a ship. Yeah, that the the ship wasn't moving. Yeah. Ah, and, so annoying. And they were mad because it was the first thing that wasn't on the Enterprise. There's always going to be somebody to complain about something. Just uh, sure. just go and look at any tech blog right now. Um, now that Apple's released all of their stuff and find out how many people are complaining about small details. <laughs> of course. Those are people, are. those are people that are treading, treading in the path of the, of the ego right there. They're so concerned with all the small things that the, they've missed the, the grand story. Uh, I think the trailer for the, the Star Trek series looked pretty great. It, it was, yep. I enjoyed it a lot. I love the fact that it's the first time we have a female captain and a female first officer. Um, mm-hmm. And that's 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 really, um, I think that's a big thing. You know, people might think that's not a big thing, but I I think that's a big deal because maybe as, as it's on uh, CBS, am I correct? Yeah, the CBS All Access is it's going to be online only. Oh, really? Well, yeah. Either You're way, even going to play it on on TV. Being on a being on a main network like that and uh, having two women of power um, helming a show. It's it's steering steering society in the right direction, in my opinion. Um, sure. That people are starting to uh, be comfortable. I shouldn't say people. That marketing and uh, corporations are starting to become comfortable with what the rest of us already know that men and women are actually equal. Um, but before I go on another tangent, <laughs> speaking of actually speaking of that, um, this without intending to. I played right into the first thing that I wanted to um, share that I've been into, which is the originality podcast. Um, Lamb Lamb brought up a podcast of uh, Song Exploder, which is, even though they file themselves in uh, art, they could be right in the group with us of creativity-themed podcasts. Originality is also a a creativity-themed podcast. And what's fascinating about originality, um, not only is it a really good show, but it's almost uh, like the mirror image of our show in the sense that it's a podcast about creativity, uh, finding out how creators uh, take ideas and bring them to life. But it's hosted instead of by two men, it's hosted by two women. So if you guys look in the overcast charts, you'll see us and originality trading places and the, the illusionist kicking us both in the teeth continually to the the ladies of originality, welcome to the podcast world. I know you guys have other podcasts. Welcome to the creativity podcasting world. They're bringing some 
really good stuff. They've they've done two episodes so far. They have kind of uh, their their format is, is sort of similar to Radio Lab in the sense that uh, it's the two of them talking with. They've done interviews with people, but it's not just the full interview. It's just clips from the interview um, intermingled into the conversation that they're having with each other. It's really good. You guys should go listen to it. I I must admit I still haven't yet. Shame. Shame. Yeah, I know. Shame. I know. I just you know you know how it is, man. I have such a vast list of podcasts I listen to now that it's you know I'm still listening to to some long ones. Like I still listen to Hardcore History um, and those things. Oh are yeah, it's like a week and a half of listening, right? Yeah, there. it's it's like an entire you know. Thank goodness, or not thank goodness. I hate my long commute, but my long commute does afford me the amount of time it takes to to listen to a podcast like that. But it still takes two or three days worth of driving for me to digest an entire episode. I just digested in two days the the entirety of uh, the Up and Vanished podcast, uh, which is a well, actually it's not even over yet, but uh, it was like something like fifty episodes. It's it's a crime podcast, and I love those crime podcasts, a la Serial and S Town and so forth. Sure, sure. What's that uh, one? A sword and it's called Sword and Stone, I think. What's oh, it Sword and Scales. Sword and Scale, yeah, that's right. It's was, a reference yeah. to the Statue of Lady Justice. Uh, got sword you. in one hand, the scales in the other. Uh, I haven't listened to that one. I think that's about um, courtroom stuff, mm-hmm. and I'm not so much interested in that. I like the investigation. Sure. Anything else you want to share with us that you've been into? Um, I want to share how I'm 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 into it. Um, I think that the timing is really important. Um. Like with uh, with Song Exploder, I don't. I, there are, there are definitely times of day that I'd prefer to listen to it, and I don't think I could listen to it during the day, like when I'm driving around or just you know, because I feel like there's certain podcasts that you can kind of just throw on in the background and and listen to while you're doing other things. But I definitely feel like Song Exploder is one that you have to listen to carefully. So I've now added that to my my list of things that I do at the end of the night. Um, it's it's going to be one episode every single night before I go to sleep. Nice. It's your bedtime story. Yeah, exactly. So the last thing I have kicking around in my head is a beautifully described process for a creation of a work of fiction. Um, and that's what I, I dream to. I like that. Um, you know what I've been... I, I don't know that I intentionally did this. You know what I've been doing recently is I've been watching a lot of documentaries about video games. Huh. It's kind of strange, right? Yeah. Like, I watched uh, Man vs. Snake, which is really good. It's about a guy that uh, played this arcade game in the 80s called uh, Nibbler. I think it's called Nibbler. It's essentially like, remember um, the Nokia phones used to have that game of snake on them? Mm-hmm. Where you have to keep moving the snake around without eating its tail uh, or touching any other part of it. But uh, it keeps growing longer and longer. It's essentially that game. Uh, but like a... Atari looking version. And it's this guy got like the world record or whatever and then and it's it's just about him trying to get it again. Um it's but it's fascinating to see this subculture that and it still exists and it's not the gaming culture that we know but like the old gaming culture which is in, to me akin sort of to the old Dungeons and Dragons um thing in the sense that uh, it was very 
there was magazines dedicated to it and rankings and um you know people would go to arcades and and get these scores on our in arcades so that there was witnesses to them doing it you know uh mm-hmm. so that it could be published uh it's it's fascinating and it, this is one i watched a long time ago uh it kind of goes along with it it's called king of kong which is about uh donkey kong um, that's a great documentary and then another one i stumbled across is one called nintendo quest and it's about this guy that uh decides he wants to collect Every single Nintendo game that was ever made, which was, I think, 768, uh, and his friend challenges, his friend's the documentary filmmaker, challenges challenges him to get all 768 in 30 days without using the internet in any way, shape, or form. Huh. So he's driving around to places that have Nintendo cartridges and just buying any that he can find, but he has a budget, a fixed budget. Um and you just learn some really fascinating things about things that you didn't think people were still paying attention to. Like, for example, that the most rare Nintendo game is a game called uh, Track and Field. Shoot. No, Track Events. Dang. I think it's called Track Events. I just totally messed up by not remembering the name of it. Uh, but essentially, people have sold it for like $70,000. Holy crap. Yeah. So fascinating stuff. Wow. That's shocking. <laughs> I'm not sure in what way those are inspiring me other than just like getting me excited about uh, maybe maybe they inspire me because they make me want to make a documentary. Hey, man, sometimes sometimes it's not useful to know why it's just useful to do. <laughs> That's true. And you'll discover the why later. I think I think that's that's actually kind of something that I meant to talk about on this on this episode, and I totally forgot to. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, is that you know let let your heart and 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 mind wander where it wants to. Um, like you know I've been really diving into to Nordic history lately, so I'm kind of on the same path as you. Like just something that makes absolutely zero reasonable sense for where I am as a person, but. Yeah, man, I'm 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 obsessed with with the the kings of old when it comes to to the the Nordic history that we, and it comes from, um, it comes from how much I I I think we completely misunderstand Nordic history. So yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Um, and but it's also inspired me to to want to write some pretty some pretty visceral stuff so um you know it, I, I you consume what you need in the time that you need it and then it produce it, it helps you to produce what your your heart and mind is trying to get out to the rest of the world yeah i think you bring up a very good point there i think sometimes we use uh this idea of inspiration as a utility it's not always a utility sometimes it's just uh an energy thing sometimes you just need energy from something and it gives it to you and you don't know what the purpose of of that energy is. It might not even be related to the thing which gives you energy, like going for a walk. Uh, you know, the, there's no direct correlation to I go for a walk, therefore I am inspired to create shoes. No, sometimes you just go for a walk because you need energy, and then you use that for whatever thing that you need to work on. So that's a very good point that you bring up, and that single mindedness is probably. Um, a bad, bad mindset for. I'm, I'm sure it is. <laughs> Single-mindedness in general is bad. 
Yeah, there's there's never an instance in which limiting how you think about something directly helps it. Um, you know, I, I've been, I, I'm trying to, if anyone out there can think of something where that is actually the case, you know, obviously maybe disarming a bomb or something, you probably shouldn't be, um, have, have, have your mind wander too much, but I can't think of an endeavor in which you need to create something or, or, or need to work with other people in which being narrow-minded is a good thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I mean obviously for creativity, narrow-mindedness is, is the enemy for utility single-mindedness is the utility um like you said dismantling a bomb or um deciding you're going to achieve a goal that's a place where single-mindedness comes in handy sure um speaking of strange places too you know i've i've i'm not gonna go into details here because this could be epically long but uh just watching the worldwide developer conference keynote from apple on monday where they they announce all the changes that are coming to the software and in this case um to hardware to me that is i i've watched every single one of those since the first iphone um you can call me a super fan if you want that's fine <laughs> i'm okay with that uh but it always inspires me and it's it's not that i'm a developer um i don't know how to code and it's not that i'm i'm building hardware or anything to do with any of that world I think it just inspires me because, you know, here's this little device and, and this could go for um, Android devices as well. I'm just not in that world. I don't know a lot about it, but here's this little device and every it's got this software on it that's helping us do things every day. And every year they work to improve that. How can we dial this in a little bit further? How can we make this a little bit better? What if we put this here? And it, it's it's. It is an exemplification of so many of the things that we talk about on the show. Um, the idea of, of failure being an illusion, you know, oh, we tried this. It didn't work. You guys didn't like the old control center. So now we made a new control center and then you don't like that one. So then we made a new one and they keep working at it and trying to improve it and try. And they always seem to jump forward in some way, in my opinion, to where I get my phone and I go, oh, you know, it's like I for, we forget that we were holding this thing in our hand all the time. And this goes for computers and everything else that they make, too. Uh, we forget that what we're holding in our hands is a modern marvel. It is a marvel of engineering. It, it, it's uh, There's a... I will try to find it. I think it's called... Uh, now I can't remember what it's called. Wow, that, that, my brain is really just broken today. Uh there's there's an essay that somebody wrote about this idea of uh, we live in the future. Right now, we live in the future, but uh, we live in a bubble that makes us forget that, that we look at this phone and all we see is this phone. All we see is uh, Siri didn't understand me. All we see is, is this, but we don't ever actually just look down and go, this thing is incredible. Mm -hmm. And if you told, you know, any, if you told a uh, 12-year-old lamb, that you're going to be able to play video games, listen to music, take photos, and talk to people all in a little tiny box in your pocket? He wouldn't have believed you. Dude, if you told, if, if you told adult lamb that, he wouldn't have believed it 10 years ago. <laughs> and I think that's why this fascinates me is because it, it reminds me of the, it brings back the wonder in these devices. You know, you and I talked about it briefly, about how, uh, 
just some of the stuff that, that, that they're doing um, is it brings me back to a lot of times they always bring me back to the stock apps mm-hmm. um, because, you know, time goes by and I'm using something else because I need I need this specific feature. And then they just slightly polish one of the apps and I go, you know what? Maybe I just I don't need that. Maybe I just need to use a stock one again. The stock one's pretty incredible. And it just brings me back to that that simplicity, but that wonder. And and that inspires me. Every time I watch a, an Apple keynote, I make something. And that that's a strange well, place to find inspiration, but I do. That's that's that explains why you uh if if people could only see the text message strings that go back and forth between us. <laughs> um there, there. This week, folks, um, there have been some epic ones by Chad, and yeah, that's that explains why you dove back into Apple Notes. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, just the fact that they they brought handwriting search, which is what I always wanted Apple Notes to have. I I just want everything simple and easy. You guys are, you know, I just we just put up our screens, our home screens, not too long ago. By the time we get back to the te- tools and techniques episode, I'll probably have a completely different home screen. Uh, but it'll probably be less than I had before. I'm just narrowing it down. I don't know. It's it's Yeah, mine's, mine's, mine's already changed since our last episode pretty significantly. <laughs> it happens, but I think that everybody knows that. You know, if, anybody, if there's anybody out there that has, like, the same home screen on their phone and has had it for a really long time and is happy with every app they have and haven't changed anything out, send us a screenshot. I want to see what you're using. Yeah, that's impressive. Seriously. Um, anyways, but that, fascinating. I can't wait to... I'm considering possibly doing a epically long blog. Yes, B-L-O-G. I'm planning on maybe doing one of those, just talking about this iOS 11, uh, because there's a lot of things about it that fascinate me. And the reason this stuff fascinates me also, by the way, is because I, I like the idea of uh, some, something being able to help me do something very fast and uh, just knock things out of the way quickly and easily so that I can focus on being present. You know, if I if I know I have an app that I just boom, 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 put that in there and then it's taken care of and I can let go of that as opposed to having to go through 15 steps that I had to go through before, that's always going to make me happy. Uh, anything else you want to share, Lamb? Um, no, uh, other than other than like, I- I'm less worried about what people are telling me to do with just the fact that words intrude when I'm trying to think of words. Um, yeah, I see. You know, when you're trying to formulate a sentence and somebody's, you know, somebody's singing about money, you know, Pink Floyd singing about money, and I'm not writing about money, it's not really what I want to be thinking about. <laughs> you know, if I'm writing about sex, maybe not, maybe not, a, it could be, but most often not. Not likely, sure. Yeah. Every once in a while, you might get a happy accident, but the 99% of the time that you don't, it just makes for bad writing. Bad writing. My friend Ken used to write to music with lyrics, but he would find very specific songs or artists that matched what he was trying to write. Mm -hmm. I used to do that. I created a soundtrack. And then I realized I would spend more time making the soundtrack than starting the book. Still, I can't can't do that. It feels super weird to me. One time it worked for me. 
somebody somebody mentioned this as far as like one song. They'd say just pe- repeat one song over and over again, and the words mm-hmm. become insignificant. But I did this with two albums, and I had a character that I was working on that was like a college professor in his fifties. And mm-hmm. I thought about it, and I'm like, what kind of music would this dude listen to? And I was like, redhead, because she was my grandmother. You know, she already <laughs> had, you know, like she was older by the time I was born, is what I mean by that. You know, <laughs> like you're saying, like, I never saw her, you know, I never subjectified my grandmother because she was my Mima, and that was it. And <laughs> no, I mean that she didn't have red hair anymore by the time I was born. <laughs> She she had uh, whatever color hair that, you know, like women color their hair when, when they start going white. Well, some women do. And uh, yeah, I didn't know until probably until I was already attracted to redheads. Well, so that, see, I, I think that's, that's something ingrained in you. Yeah, that's like genetic, like craving. <laughs> that's just something that you your grand, that's just something your granddaddy passed on down to you. Actually, you know what, though, when I think about that, that's interesting because they do say that like... um there is a certain level of genetic attraction. Uh, obviously, not an expert on this, but what I remember is um, people who are tend to be attracted attract they're they're attracted by certain genetic traits, and what that is is actually their genetic code looking to fill in the pieces um, because you know, like to make the most viable offspring. Now, whether that's true or not, obviously I don't know. But when you, when I think about that, like, yeah, maybe that did from, come from my grandfather's side of the family, because there was that gene that wants that gene. Yeah, you know, it craves the redhead gene because it doesn't have it. Mm, that's or right. it's getting, or in my case, I would have it because it was my grandmother. Uh, again, the mitochondria is, is, stays consistent through generations. But maybe it's getting weaker, you know, because it's in redhead gene is not a dominant trait. Right. So maybe it's like, you need, this family needs an injection of redhead genes. Go yeah. out and get a redhead. Possible. That's, Which means that, like, this genetic thing <laughs> is very similar to what we're talking about with beauty and what we crave. Well, I've never, like, really looked in at all onto, like, the, the the details behind like the whole pheromone thing like you know like mm-hmm. the, I wonder if there and I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up later like I wonder if there is like a you know a, something in that that pheromone fucking magic that uh, carries you know or that you you recognize when you fucking are around it like mm-hmm. you know ooh there's a there's a sprinkle of redhead in there you know there's a sprinkle of this there's yeah. a touch of that you we know, don't it's know like, right and, it, and it's not that you're getting it it's just that your your inner kind of your makeup you know your bits and bobs and your molecules inside are like start firing like ooh ooh that's what we want that's what yeah, we want like, and like little magnets like yeah. Um, like that's where that excitement comes from and then all you would do as a fucking stupid big meat bag of bones just start going oh i want that you know like yeah. maybe that's where why do i have an erection right now exactly maybe that's what stems an erection uh oof. this is some stuff man this is some deep stuff no pun intended into some shit all right but i think it's it's completely possible